You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So we are currently in a sermon series called Jonah, where we are discussing the peace of God that we have available to us through Christ and the call that we have toward obedience. And so this morning, we are going to be in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. So if you have a hard copy of the text with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. If you didn't bring one, but you want to, to have one, you should be able to find one under seat around you. And for your reference, if you do grab one of those, Jonah can be hard to miss. So it's page 726 or around there in those um, Bibles. Um, and um, when you get there, so we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. So once you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Okay, verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we might not perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here, especially if it's your first time. I just want to say welcome. Uh, My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We're glad that you made us a part of your week, and hopefully you enjoy yourself this morning. And uh, for those of you who are regulars, welcome to all the scallywags among us. I'm glad you guys are here too, Um, and we're excited to get into the text today. So like Lauren said, we're walking through the book of Jonah, and we've been kind of walking through a little bit slowly these first four weeks, uh, kind of developing and setting up the storyline. Uh, we're going to pick up a little bit of speed in the upcoming weeks, but we're walking through Jonah uh, throughout the entire fall. And so I want to catch you up uh, to where we've been so far, uh, and then talk a little bit about where we're going to go this morning uh, before I pray. So just to catch you up, if you haven't been with us, the story of Jonah starts very matter-of-factly. The Lord, the sovereign, the God of all gods, king of all kings, comes to a man named Jonah who's relatively unknown and gives him a a very serious and a very difficult assignment, which is to go to the great city of the day called Nineveh. Uh, It's called the great city for two reasons. One, because number one, it's it's very populous and it has a lot of influence. Uh, But number two, it's also a great city full of evil. And we know this because not only God says so in Jonah, but later on the book of Amos is a prophecy against the city again. And so it's full of great evil. And he sends Jonah with a message. And it's a real, it's not exactly like a church building message. It's not inspirational. It's, hey, this thing's going to be destroyed in like 40 days. And then that's the message he's supposed to give, right? And, uh, And Jonah does the opposite. So the story, you guys are familiar with this. He runs away from God. It says three times he runs from the presence of the Lord, gets on a boat in a city called Joppa and heads toward a city called Tarshish. And he is, has no intention of being obedient to the call of God on his life. And so we pick up the story as Jonah is right at the cusp of thinking that he, he got away with it, right? He's on the boat. He got through all the customs agents and everything, and he's headed away from where he feels like God has called him. But he's going he's gonna to be met with a difficult reminder that God is still sovereign. The story starts with our story this morning that God basically hurls a storm at him. 
And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but it's kind of a two-parter this morning because we're only going to cover the first half of the story in the storm. Next week, we're going to cover the rest. My focus this morning is simple. How does the story of Jonah being met with a storm teach us about storms that God has inevitably told us are coming for our lives? Of course, we know in the scriptures that storms are often used as symbols. These, the scriptural narrative of storms, Jesus uses as a, as a symbol of the suffering and hardship of life. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, the very last story that he tells, he tells a story of a builder, two builders. One man builds his house on the sand. One man builds his house on the rock. Jesus matter-of-factly states, when the storms came and beat upon these houses, the one that was built on the sand fell, and great was the fall of it, and the one that built on the rock stood. Now, I just want to point out to you that, and you can go back and check me on this, the Bible doesn't say, if the storms were to happen to come. Jesus just matter-of-factly states, when the storms of life come, when the storms hit the house, meaning that Jesus believed that in a fallen world, the storms were coming. They are always coming, right? They're going to hit your house. And so the question is not whether or not you'll be able to dodge the storms if you got good spiritual meteorology. It's what are, what are you going to do when the storms come? Have you built the house solidly? How are you expecting this storm to come? And what I want to do is develop what kind of theology should Christians have around storms? I want to develop a theology of storms this morning briefly and then spend some time praying and worshiping together. But before we do, if you'll bow your heads, I'd love to pray and ask the Spirit to speak to us through his word. Father, first and foremost, thank you so much that we have the privilege to gather together, to worship, to sing in your name, to read your word freely. Thank you that you've preserved your word for thousands of years so that we can run to your word for truth, for guidance, for direction. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're present with us, fulfilling the promise of Jesus that you would never forsake us that you'd be with us even always to the end of the age. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're present here with us to do the challenging and the convicting and the encouraging and the comforting, all of the things that we all need at various levels and in various ways. Lord, I ask that you would do so through your word. For those that are currently in the middle of a storm, I pray that your word would speak clearly to them, that they might be able to trust you in the midst of it. Father, for those that are totally unaware and the storm is coming, I pray that you would prepare them now, that they might be prepared for the day, that they might cling to you with all their heart. And finally, Lord Jesus, for those who are on the heels and the tail end of a storm that has left and wreaked havoc in their lives, I pray you would remind them that you are a God who rebuilds and restores, and that you would refresh those that are under the sound of my voice with, with help that comes from you through your word. And we just submit ourselves to your word this morning together, and we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, let me start in verse 4. I just want to read again what Lauren read to us. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to, to break up. This word, the Lord hurled, hurled, is a really unique Hebrew word that's used a number of times in this first chapter. And I think it's kind of funny. The same, it, it means that God basically took in all of his power in his hands. What he holds is the winds. And he basically just slings the winds right at Jonah as he's running away from him. It's the same word used for what they, the, the sea mariners are going to do to their cargo. They hurl their cargo overboard because they're terrified. And the best of the best is it's exactly what they do to Jonah. They hurl him overboard uh, in a minute because they can't 
get the storm to stop. And so I, just, I don't know if you don't think that's funny. I have a sick sense of humor, but that's funny to me. And uh, I just enjoyed it. So what happens is God basically uses his power cosmically to hurl a storm at Jonah right when he thinks he's about to get away with his disobedience, right? Now, I want to start by saying, how do we define why, why God permits or, in this case, actively engages in sending storms into our lives? I want to say, I'm particularly talking to Christians this morning, how do we explain why that happens? And I have, two, I have three options, one of which has to be rejected entirely if we're going to be biblical Christians, and the other two give us two different options about what potentially might be happening in your life if you're in the middle of a storm. Now, I wanted to make mention, and I mentioned it in my prayer, but I got to say it briefly. If you're not in a storm right now or you don't think you've ever been in a storm, um, I am always reminded of the story of uh, in 1900 on the city of Galveston that a big hurricane showed up, and this was before they had meteorology, and it just wiped out the whole island. And I think about sometimes spiritually we we get we get to thinking that it's always going to be roses, and then and then the storm comes and we haven't been prepared for it. It just wipes us out spiritually. And I don't want that for you. I want you to be aware that the storms are a very they're a very real reality in a fallen world. And how do you prepare yourself for them? Well, the first way is to have a good theology of storms. So what are the three options? Okay, I'll give you the two good ones first, and then I'll end with the, with the one that I, don't, I think you have to reject. Number one, there are storms that we experience because of personal sin. Okay, that's what Jonah's dealing with here. But when we see these as Christians, we have to see them as disciplinary and not punitive. God is a father who disciplines the child whom he loves, But what we know is that Christ has absorbed all of the judgment that was meant for us on the cross in our place for our sins. So when we experience storms, we should not say, and I'm jumping ahead of myself, but we should not say that this is God's judgment and wrath on us because you're a child of God now and you're hidden in Christ. And therefore, you'll be in the ark in the midst of the storm, but it's not God's punitive judgment on you. So this is Jonah, right? He's acting in disobedience and God is a father. He sends the storm and he hurls the storm out of as an act of discipline, Okay. Now, there's a second option, and many of you have experienced this, and I've seen many Christians get derailed in this mode or this moment of their lives because they don't have words to express what's actually happening. And it's when you haven't openly, overtly been in disobedient sin without repentance, and yet you're going through a storm. And so all of your Christian friends are like, well, where's the hidden sin, brother? Like Job's friends, and you're like, I di- it's not there, you know? Like I, it's, and they're like, yeah, right, dude, we know God doesn't do that. Where's your sin? You know, let's talk about it. Let me see your computer. You know, you do, they do they get coming after you, right? And you're like, fine, take it, you know, search through. And they go through everything, and they're like, but there's still something. You know, you got another job? You got another, where's, your, uh, where's your friends that we don't know about, Batman? You know, that's what they're after for you. But here's what we have to have, another category. that There are storms that we experience simply because we reside in a sinful and fallen and broken world, and that God uses those storms still formatively. So if category one is disciplinary, category two is formative for the Christian, even if it has nothing to do with your sinful behavior because you're in a fallen world. This is, in a very serious way, this is when you talk to a parent who has a child who goes through a sickness and you're like, why? Is it because of the sins of me or sins of my child? And they have to walk someone through saying, no, this is because you're in a sinful and fallen world that is broken and experiences death all of the time. And God's going to take what's totally awful and he's going to still form you in his image and likeness through something that's evil and intended to destroy you. God's going to use it for your good. Okay, so those are the two options that we can expressly 
grab for ourselves as Christians. Now, the third one we have to reject, and it's this, that the storms that we experience are God's punitive wrath on us for our sins. Now, remember, I started with saying that God responds to sins for the Christian as a father would and disciplines us, but God does not respond to the sins of his children with the punitive wrath and judgment that that sin deserves. Why? Because for you and I, if you're a Christian in the room, you have bound yourself to Christ so that when God sees you, he sees his son who's fully absorbed the wrath of the father and all the sins for everyone who believes on his name so that when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished, meaning that it was finished for you and for me. And so now when God sees us, just like he said to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. By faith, the righteousness of Christ has been attributed to you and all of your sin has been given over to Christ, which he paid for on the cross. So it's not punishment. Now it's difficult that when you're really going through it to really believe this, but we have to believe this Christians. It can be disciplined without it being punitive wrath. This is like your child seeing every time they're disciplined as wrath. That means they view you only as a judge, but not as a dad or a mom. And you want them to know, no, I'm your father, I'm your mother. The discipline I'm giving you is in this setting where I'm trying to help form you, not that I'm trying to basically give the sentence to you, right? It's why when your kid steals, you don't, you know, bring out the Texas penal code on them. It's like they stole a cookie. You're like, well, let's take you to the police station then. You know, it's got to, we got to do what we got to do. That's not what we do because we're parents. Okay. So how can we know that Jonah chapter one, verse four does not represent God's wrath against Jonah? Keep your thumb in Jonah, but turn with me to the book of Romans chapter number one. Romans chapter number one, we're going to turn there. But we'll turn right back to Jonah, so keep, keep your mark there. Romans chapter number one, and I'm going to start in verse 18. I'm going to read to you a handful of scriptures here. This is Paul laying out a theological treatise for the wrath of God and what it looks like when it's revealed to mankind. Here's what he says. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Just a pause. Paul just gave you a good treatise from the moment that Genesis chapter three happens and the fall enters, the sin enters the world through the fall. This is how human beings have rejected God. It's really just a really simple summation of human history history. So they reject to know, they know who God is. And although they know that God exists, they reject God and they start to serve idols, whether that be man-made idols of their, of their own or idols that their brothers have made or their fellow human beings have made carved images and all of these things, right? It's a rejection of God. So Paul says that there's wrath that is being stored up because of this. Well, how is it revealed? Listen to what he says in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Those three words, God, or those four words, God gave them up is, is the headline. When we think about how does God extend his wrath to someone who's rejected, abandoned him, maybe, I don't know, got on a boat and tried to run from his presence. 
The answer would be that God would give them up, give Jonah up to his own devices and let him go away from his presence. The wrath of God would give us what we want apart from God and we would experience all of the terrible atrocities that, that exist and happen when we reject God. I know this because verse 26 says, for this reason, God gave them up. In verse 28, it says, since they didn't acknowledge God, God gave them up. Okay, so what do we take out of Jonah? Many people wrongly believe that Jonah's in the storm. The storm represents God's wrath against Jonah. That's totally incorrect. The storm represents God's mercy to Jonah. Jonah sets up in his mind a self-salvation technique whereby he will run away from God and run away from his presence and run away from his calling. And instead, God in his mercy hurls a storm to keep him from doing what would ultimately destroy him. And Christian, this has happened in your life, whether you know it or not. You deemed it as God's judgment against you, but in reality, he was stopping you in your tracks from doing something and walking in a way that would destroy you. You thought when you lost that job that was really, really good and gave you lots and lots of money, and the moment that your heart was about to get really clutched up in the vices of avarice and greed, and, and God ended up sending a storm into your life where the economy went down. You lost that job and now the bank account was low and you're like, why does God hate me? It's like, no, he loves you because you were headed into a terrible place where it takes, it would take a camel going through the eye of a needle to be, what does Jesus say? A camel, a camel goes through the eye of a needle easier than it would for you to enter the kingdom of God with that job. But we think of it as God's judged us. No, God sent mercy. He sent mercy to us. He kept us. It looks like this. Jonah's on the boat thinking he's finally going to get peace apart from the presence of God. And God, in his powerful hands, sends the winds that are at his disposal and stands in his way. Parents, it looks like this. When you tackle your son as he's running towards the highway and he gets a you know, bruised ankle and he thinks, Dad hates me. You think, no, I love you because I kept you from what could have been worse. The wrath of the father would be sitting on the front porch as your child runs into the street and saying, I hope it works out. That's not how God treats us. He doesn't see us sailing to Tarshish and say, well, he did want to go. No, he intervenes. It's God's merciful intervention that displays just how much he loves us. And he intervenes in a way that that clearly displays and exercises his authority so that when he steps in and stops us before we run off the cliff, we'll know that he is God and we'll run to him. Okay, so what does God do in the storm though? I want to go to this text. I want to bring out three things and then we'll work towards a close. Number one, God in storms always rids us of our self-trust. That's what's happening with Jonah here. God has a plan. He calls Jonah to that plan. Jonah disagrees with the plan creates his own plan, follows his own plan, trusts himself. God rids us of that distrust by thwarting our plans. And we think that's unfair, but he's thwarting the plans that were basically designed to destroy you. The book of Proverbs says it like this. There's a way that seems right to man and it ends in destruction. When God thwarts those plans, that's a good thing. It's like you think it looks beautiful and then he lights them on fire and you're mad about that, but he was lighting on fire your own death warrants. It's a good thing. So he rids us of our self-trust by showing us just how bad it could be. I think the storms also give us a snapshot. They give us a picture of what life without God would be. See, we think we're headed to peace. God sends the storm and says, it will be perpetual stormy where you're going. Don't go there. All right. Number two, 
God helps us in storms by helping us reprioritize the things that actually matter. Verse number five says this, when the mariners were afraid, each cried out to his own God and they hurled, there's that word again, the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Suffering has a way of really focusing you in on what matters most in your life, you know? Like, there's a phone call that we could all get when we're leaving out of here. We may have walked in mad because we lost fantasy football last week, and we're really hoping to get, some, get back on the record this week, right? And you could get a phone call that just totally makes that seem silly, right? Some of you have gotten that phone call. Some of you have not, and praise God for that. But some of you have had that moment where what you thought was really happening in your life, like, I'm just really going through it. You ever heard somebody say they're really going through it, and it just makes you mad at them because you're really going through it, you know? And you really have to, it's a lot, it takes a lot of maturity, right, to, to be able to, like, empathize with someone or sympathize with someone whenever you feel like you don't even have any idea. It's your little sharper edges, right, because you're getting really beat up. It's like you're in the cage with Tyson, and Tyson's knocking you out, and they got in, like, a squabble with their kid. It's frustrating because he knocked you out a lot of times, and you're, like, getting back up, and they're like, hey, could you help me minister to me, you know? But God has a way in suffering, and I'm talking about in storms, like this one is so, it's such a big storm that this ship's going to break up, right? To reprioritize, here's what happens with the mariners. The mariners have in their boat basically their livelihood. And I mean that with the cargo and with the boat itself. These are merchants. They take the goods that they have, and it's probably thousands of dollars worth of goods that they're taking to sell and to trade. And so basically all their livelihoods are built up in this boat, but yet they're willing to hurl it into the sea like it's worth nothing. Why? Because in the moment of suffering in the storm, they realize they might not even have a life worth living if they don't do it. That's what suffering does, doesn't it? It's like when you have all these little squabbles and then something happens in your marriage and you realize, oh my gosh, if I don't, I might not even have a family to come home to, much less to argue with. Anybody have that moment where the attack comes on your family? Good. Amen. (laughs) Isaac's like, no, we're good. (laughs) And I'm happy for that. (laughs) It'd be a little discouraging if he said yes. And so the sailors in their desperation, what do they do? They toss aside the things that actually they thought they valued when they got on the boat, right? Like there's things that you will value, you think you value in the morning and by the evening you get ready to reprioritize when the storm comes because it comes suddenly and it comes shockingly. Okay, last one, number three, God always calls us back to himself in the storms. Now this is whether it's disciplinary or formative. God calls us back to himself so that he might reveal himself to us. In verse six, he says, What do you mean, you sleeper, speaking to Jonah? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us so that we might not perish. Jonah's in this spiritual slumber that you and I are often in. It's not a slumber that Jesus has given us rest. It's that we go off and we fall to sleep like the disciples who were called to pray. And there's this cry to him, hey, wake up, pray, because we're all going to die here. Maybe your God will be better than our gods have been at this moment. So there's this call, this, the call similar to the call that Jonah got in verse 1. Arise, Jonah, and go to Nineveh. Get up, Jonah. It's about to go poorly for you. Suffering does this. It kind of calls out to you. C.S. Lewis, a very famous quote of his, he says it like this. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses storms as a megaphone to say, I'm still here. You can't run. You need to listen up. (laughs) That's what storms are. Now, that may seem harsh, but it's not, once again, it's not harsh if danger's afoot. Okay, so 
I want to spend a little bit of time before we close on this thought. There are two meanings in storms because there's a there's really two active agents that we see in the book of Job particularly when the storms come into Job's life, we see the activity of God and the activity of Satan. Satan comes up before God and basically God asks Satan, um, have you considered my servant Job who's righteous? Satan's response to that is he's only righteous because you bless him and you protect him and you do good for him. He wouldn't be so righteous if you let me have him, let me send some storms. And so God permits that. The rest of the book is basically this engagement about these storms that continue to come into Job's life in order for him to be brought low and then Job's response when he's brought low. And what we see in this is really a depiction of the two different meanings or the purposes for which storms come. One purpose and meaning comes from Satan and one purpose and meaning comes from God. As is true always of Satan, his are right out front, very, very obvious, even though he's deceptive. And you can really pick up on his meanings if you're just willing to read the clear text of the Bible. God's meaning is both deeper, more wise, more amazing, more fulfilling, and then also requires faith. And it requires a level of mystery that you might not actually understand the meaning for 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years after the suffering. But God has a meaning in it. Let me explain what those two are. In the book of John, chapter 10, verse number 10, I'm just going to read to you. Jesus basically frames this for us as he's speaking to his disciples, the two different meanings. He says, the thief or Satan comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus juxtaposes himself against Satan. So what does that mean? Satan's meaning in storms is simply this. If I can bring a person low enough, he will inevitably curse God. If I could take away that which is good, materially good, feeling good, then he will not worship the God who created him if he doesn't get his good gifts. Satan ultimately believes that human beings are so self-interested that if, God, if he's able to take away through destruction, through killing, through thieving, everything that God gives, then we will turn on him. That's what he believed about Job. God's meaning in storms is the inverse. Once we are brought low, God says this, then you will know me in the power of my resurrection. Now that's more mysterious and difficult, but it's just factual. God's intention in storms is that once we get to the basement level floors of suffering that you and I don't even know exist, okay? They're there. And one day Jesus is going to push the button. He's going to take us down there. And we're like, oh man, it's bad down here. We thought it was bad. You weren't even in the basement last time, you know? And we're going to go down there. And it's when we get down there that then Jesus will say, you're knowing me in the fellowship of my suffering. So when you get to know me in the power of my resurrection, it will mean more. It will be deeper. It will be more fulfilling. If you're a Christian in the room, you've ever really suffered, you know this. If you've ever really gotten to the bottom of what you felt like was the basement of your sin and you just felt disgusted with yourself, the cross means more, doesn't it? It's like when you betray yourself, you're like, oh, I hate myself. And then Jesus steps in and says, rise, my daughter, or rise, my son. I bring you to life again. And you're like, oh, my, the cross is more. But until you get to the basement, and you're kind of like, well, you know, I like Passion of the Christ, but I'm not a fan of Mel Gibson. You don't get it. <laughs> it's more than that. And only the storms can teach us that in a way that nothing else can. It's why he whispers to us in our pleasures. It's not that God's not still speaking through our pleasures. It's the, it's the pains that teach. They teach us what we could never learn another way. So what should we do in the storm? Well, I have three things that are very obvious, and then I want to really focus on the last. It's this. We should stay awake, okay? <laughs> like Jonah's in the middle of the ship. He has no business sleeping. He's in a spiritual slumber of laziness that he needs to wake up. Number two, we should cry out to God. 
Like even the pagans are doing a better job here than Jonah, right? They're crying, even though they're misguided, they're crying out to their false gods. They're crying out somewhere. They're like, we need help. And then, of course, we should repent and believe the gospel. So if there's sin and we believe that it's uh, disciplinary, we should say, you know, Lord, forgive us of sin. And we, we want to trust you. You know, that's still true. But there's one area that I want to focus on, and that is the underlying theme of this story that you only get if you've read the New Testament. And that is there's another story of Jesus where he goes into a boat down into the belly of the boat and falls to sleep and a storm shows up. And if you know this story, you're familiar with it. The disciples start freaking out just like the mariners. They basically beat on the door. They go into Jesus, who is like, you know, sixth stage of REM sleep. He's enjoying his life. And they say, do you just want us to die? Jesus' response is the exact opposite of Jonah's. Whereas Jonah basically starts to pray and kind of confesses. Jesus, being sinless, has nothing to confess. Jesus looks at them and says, why are you afraid? You have little faith. And then he speaks to the storms and calms the seas. And there's this response from the disciples. They look at each other and say, what kind of manner of man is this that he can speak and command the seas? And they're shocked. So what does it teach us? What, what, what is, well, number one, I think that's obvious, is that Jesus is the true and better Jonah, right? We get that. We're, we're getting that theme here. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. But let's go one layer deeper than that. I think it teaches us that the focus should not be on the size of the storm, like the mariners, or on the splendor of our plans, like Jonah, or even on the strength of the boat, which you and I often do. We think that our, our plans are foolproof in our life. Our ideas are great. Our PhD is good enough. But the story with Jesus is we shouldn't focus on either of those three things, but on who's in the boat with us. See, the mariners had a problem because even though they had a man of God in the boat, they had a man of God who was disobedient, sinful, and not able to calm the storms. And so Jonah says, well, just hurl me into the sea and make atonement, throw me in the waters to calm the seas. Jesus comes out from the belly of the boat being sinless. And rather than him being hurled into the sea, he calms the storms and then inevitably tells them, I don't have to be thrown into the sea. I'll dive in for you to make atonement. I don't have to be thrown in. No one takes my life from me. I willingly give it for you. And so to come full circle where we started, it's not if the storms are going to come, it's when the storms come. And the question I want to leave you with, if Jesus is in the boat, then we can truly rest. Like maybe this afternoon you could take a nap with Jesus and be totally okay if you're in the storm because he's in the boat. Now, friends, if you're not sure if Jesus is in the boat, I have really good news. This is not where I take a turn and tell you all the warnings, okay, even though they're dire. The good news is the book of Revelation says, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who would let me in, I want to come and sup with them. Jesus desires to be in the boat. And so I want to leave you with that. How do you get Jesus in the Believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel this morning. Because again, the storms are so terrifying, hard, difficult. They, they pry away at us at the most fundamental of ways. The hardships of life continue to seem to get harder. And listen, if we just look societally, it almost feels like we're always in a storm. It's like anxiety fills the whole room all the time. Kids and high schoolers that are in school, it feels like you're always in that moment of anxiety. You know, and should I wear a mask? Not. Get a shot? Not. What am I going to do? Do I say the wrong thing? Am I going to get my teacher mad at me? And then there's all these pressures of the storm. And yet, the question is not whether or not you're strong enough. It's not whether or not you can endure it. It's, is Jesus in the boat with you? And that's the encouragement I want to bring you if you're a Christian because he is. He's in the boat with you.
you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Mm, Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your one and only son, the true and better Jonah, to be in the boat with us even now. Holy Spirit, for those who are being tossed by every wind-torn storm that life can throw or that Satan can devise, I pray that you would remind them that you are with them in the boat. Calm the seas of their life with your powerful and authoritative voice. Teach them the lessons that the waves can bring. And most of all, we ask for those under the sound of my voice who are Christians, we ask together that as we're thrown against the rock of ages, that we would know you in the fellowship of your suffering and the power of your resurrection. And Father, for those under the sound of my voice who may not be certain you're in the boat, I ask now, Holy Spirit, would you speak clearly and loudly to them that Jesus is the true and the better Savior. That there's no other name by which we can be saved than by the name of Jesus. And I pray that there be a reception, a welcoming of Jesus into the boat this morning. We trust you, God. We love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.